Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage... All the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Had the Greeks been defeated at Salamis, not only would the West have lost its first struggle for independence and survival, but it is unlikely that there would have ever been such an entity as the West at all. So says the blurb for a little-known history book called Persian Fire by Tom Holland. <laughs> did I so, really Tom, write that? Good grief. You did write that. You did write that. So we ended the last... Um, episode of the rest is history on a moment of extraordinary tension anticipation and drama the great persian army of xerxes has crossed the the hellespont and the fleet they've crossed the hellespont they've come all the way down into central greece athens is at bay um the spartans have pitched up at the hot gates of thermopylae hoping to block the persian advance and we ended last time with you saying there was electricity in the air, quite literally. So I'm looking forward to finding out what happens next. Okay, so the, 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 the fleet at Artemisian, the watchtower on Skiathos has signalled that the Persian fleet is coming. And um, there's a squadron of, of Sidonian ships that's from Sidon in Phoenicia. And the Phoenicians are the kind of the great naval power of the Mediterranean, the great rivals to the Greeks, and they are subject to the Persian king. There are three. There, there are three Greek ships. Um, they don't put up a, a great show. One of them gets captured. Another one runs onto a shoal, and the third one comes back and says, "Ah, the Persians are coming." That's no good. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a good start. But then, but then they wait for the Persian fleet to arrive, and the Persian fleet doesn't arrive. And they, the, the, the Greeks begin to realise that it, this was just a kind of, you know, a, a advance guard sent to scope things out meanwhile at Thermopylae this huge dust cloud the earth is starting to shake and <laughs> the Spartans begin to realize that you know the king is coming the Persian settle on the great plain that that kind of extends beyond the gates the hot gates um and a, a cavalryman rides up to scope out the uh, the, the hot gates uh, and there they find that the, the Spartans are combing their hair uh, combing their hair wrestling yeah combing they have they wear their hair very long right um and it's slightly not, bemused not would, by that slightly bemused by this battle. um uh, uh xerxes has a, a spartan king demaratus who's been a great rival of cleomenes who's gone into exile he's basically been deposed and he's so cross at this that he he, he goes off to side with the persians and demaratus explains that it is the custom of the spartans to comb their hair in preparation for battle so they they're they're getting ready for the big fight um xerxes sends an ambassador to demand that the uh, the spartans hand over their their weapons uh leonidas says come and get them kind of classic example of yeah. the uh, the spartans clint eastwood-esque i was about to say iconic just... sense of humor come and get them come and get them punk <laughs> um so all is set ready for ready for the battle uh, but then I said that electricity is in the air. 
Yes. And so it is. And you'll remember perhaps from part one that um, Xerxes had uh, had the Hellespont branded and fettered. And this has clearly annoyed Poseidon because a terrible storm starts to brew. And for two days it rages, howls and screams. And the Persians are kind of huddled in front of the hot gates. They don't move. Greek fleet is beached up on, on Artemisian. They don't go to sea, but the Persian fleet is caught in the, the eye of the storm. And the Greeks hope, you know, that the entire fleet might have been wrecked. In due course, after the storm starts to fade, they discover that this hasn't actually happened. But a, a sizable proportion of the Persian fleet has indeed been destroyed. Um, the Persian fleet still you know, heavily, heavily outnumbers the Greek fleet, perhaps by three to one, perhaps. But the odds have been reduced. Yeah. And so we're set up for for the, the these twin battles, the battles of Artemisian and the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, and the state is that the, the Spartans have to hold the hot gates. The Athenians and the, and the rest of the Greek fleet have to kind of hold the uh, uh, Artemisian. Because that's question. the only way that, that 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 the Persians can be stopped. So if one if one is forced, if the sea or the land route is 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 forced, then the then it's all forced, and the they'll all have to retreat. What are they holding the Persian the hot gates for? To to buy time? To what's the yeah. reason? Yeah. So, so so essentially they're waiting for reinforcements to come up. So right. if you remember, the Spartans are not coming because because um, oh, they're, the, they're, the Olympic festival is being celebrated. Yeah, they're watching the Olympics. And the, and the other thing is is that they know that um, you know the logistics of this is is tough for the Persians because if they can hold them, say for a, for for a week, for two weeks, for three weeks, then the Persian army will start to starve. And if the Persian army starts to starve, then that reflects badly on Xerxes, whose entire authority is dependent upon the assumption that he you know he can command um, yeah you know earth and water. So two he, questions. So two questions. One, how many Persians are there? I would say that the the, the total of the for, of the land forces commanded by Xerxes would be about two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand. I mean, that's okay. a, that's an estimate. That's a lot. We don't know. And second, because the, second question. Yeah. Related to the first question, how are they being supplied? Are they living off the land? Have the yeah, Greeks living off the land? Have the Greeks done a scorched earth thing, or not? Uh, the, no, they haven't done that. And and so the fact that they're living off the land puts pressure on the local Greeks. And this is important because there is actually a pass around the back. There is a path that goes round the uh, round the hot gates. Um, and Leonidas knows about this because he's been told about this by locals. And so he has sent um, a band of local hoplites to guard it. But yeah. he can't spare anyone else to do it. So he's just taking a punt that the, per that the Persians are not going to find out about this. The problem is that the Persians are very good at finding out things like yeah. that. Both because, you know, they're very, very good at, at intelligence and that they're a mountain people and they're incredibly proficient at forcing passes. So basically, the, the Battle of Thermopylae is a disaster for the Greeks. Uh, Leonidas is an incredibly incompetent general. Um, that's because, not a sentence because you often hear. Essentially, I wouldn't say what that's a Gerard Butler. Essentially, what happens is that the, the Spartans and the other Greeks are able to hold the pass for two days. And that is yeah. an amazing feat against the sheer weight of numbers that Xerxes can command. That is an incredibly heroic thing to have done. But Leonidas is comprehensively outsmarted by Xerxes' intelligence agency because a local Greek, a guy called Ephialtes, essentially blows the secret. And whether he does this for financial gain, whether he does it because he's, you know, pissed off that you know his farm is being kind of sacked by the persians or whatever yeah he reveals the fact that there is this path up round the back and xerxes sends his crack squad which is called the immortals because every time it's um that there, there, there are a thousand of them that have golden apples on the, the butt of their spears there are nine thousand that have silver apples and every time one of them falls and he's immediately replaced so hence they're called immortals they wear these kind of beautiful robes um they they are the best troops at xerxes command they are kind of the equal of, of the spartans and he sends them up round the back and the news is brought to um, Leonidas because the uh, hoplite forces have been put there rather than trying to block the path retreats up the side of a mountain um, and the immortals are not interested in them they're interested in forcing the path so, so they just 
keep heading down. So Leonidas knows that, um, that, that, that everything is doomed. His task now is to ensure that as many of the 5,000 troops that are with him can get away. And so he decides that he is going to stay and try and um, keep the Persians engaged so that the, the, the others that are retreating can get away. And so he this is, is tr- the 300, him this and the is, 300. That's the 300. Also, um, the Thespians, from, which is a city very nearby, a great enemy of the Thebans, but also the, the, Theban, um, the Thebans who want to, uh, you know, they, they don't want to go back to their, their, their own city because they know now that Thebes is going to go over to Persia. So these these guys hold that they, they decide to stay. Um, yeah. Leonidas has this kind of you know eat well for breakfast because tonight we dine in Hades again yeah. kind of classic Clint Eastwood stuff. Um, and Xerxes obviously dines much better. <laughs> you know he breakfasts much more palatably, and then <laughs> he sends the troops into the hot gates. And this time the Spartans and the other hoplites um, they don't they previously that they'd built this kind of wall and they'd fought from behind this wall this time they go out into the open and Herodotus says that um uh, the 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 uh, the, the Xerxes troops are, are so intimidated by the um by the sight of the Spartans you know these spears bristling the red cloaks the red horsehair um kind of terrifying sight that they have to be forced by whips to approach the Spartans, and it's it's often thought that this is kind of Greek propaganda, but it seems to me entirely. But it seems to me entirely plausible because Xerxes doesn't want to waste his best troops, and he has all this kind of cannon fodder. And yeah, sure, the Greeks yeah, will kill yeah. them, but it yeah. doesn't really matter because he, you'll you know, overwhelm they're, the Greeks they're entirely expendable. With, yeah. And yeah. in the yeah, and, and in due course, their spears will be splintered. So I, it seems it does seem to me credible. Uh, and you may wonder, well, how does Herodotus know this, bearing in mind that all the Greeks die? Well, there's Demaratus, this Spartan, who is, you know, ex-king, who is there and who does seem to have been consulted by Herodotus because he gets quite a lot of his information from Demaratus. So it does seem to me at least plausible that this happened and that in due course, the, you know, the Spartans lose their spears, they're fighting with their swords and then they, they retreat to this kind of this hill. Um, the Thebans uh, they split off, they get captured, then surrender. But the Spartans and the Thespians fight on. Um, Leonidas falls in the battle. His his corpse is fought over. Herodotus says, as you know, the, the body of Patroclus was fought over by the Greeks and the, or, or by the Greeks yeah. and the Trojans. Um, Leonidas uh, perishes. All the Spartans perish. Everybody gets wiped out. And this is the famous last stand of the Spartans. And in due course, when all is silent, at last, Xerxes rise into the pass. You know, it's a kind of mulch of gore and intestines and twisted limbs. Leonidas' body is found, his decapitated head put on a spike. Meanwhile, uh, the news has been brought to the Greek fleet, who have been putting up a very, very good show against the Persians, even though they're very outnumbered. What they have realised is that if they can fight in close quarters, they're able to to beat the Persians, basically. If they can get them in close quarters, then there is a chance. But they know now that there is no prospect. At, you know, There's no point in them staying where they are. They've got to retreat. Yeah. The road to Athens is now open. So they withdraw in the night because they know that the, the, the night before uh, the last stand at Thermopylae, so they know that they're doomed. So they get away and the troops that Leonidas has sent, they also get away. But... It, it's a disastrous situation because the road to Athens is now open. Athens is doomed um, and a Spartan king has been killed. So you may well wonder, well, you know, what, where, where does this myth of Thermopylae as a kind of victory, as a defeat that's kind of more glorious than a victory? Where does it come from? Um, and I think it probably doesn't come from Sparta because the Spartans aren't very good at that kind of stuff. The guy who's brilliant at this kind of stuff is Themistocles. So I think it's... It's an Athenian myth. I, I think it's probably Themistocles is kind of blowing that particular trumpet, which is an okay. irony because he's brilliant at this kind of stuff. Anyway, Themistocles comes back to Athens and he discovers that the city is only half evacuated. And he kind of says, guys, get a, get a move on. And so now the evacuation proceeds full, full scope. And there are all these kind of stories of, uh, you know, 
ships crossing the sea, dogs following them. Xanthippus, who is uh, he'd, he'd been sent into exile um, with, with the ostracism, but all the people who've been sent into exile have been called back. He's the father of Pericles, who will in due course be the great, you know, the great leader yeah. of Athens. He he sets he sets ship for for Salamis, and his dog follows him all the way. He oh, lands on paddling. the island of Salamis, paddling. Kind of- yeah, he lands there. The dog reaches the beach, totters up, and expires. Oh, that's sad. It's kind of a really story. To see Dogs keep dying in this podcast, and it's the same <laughs> yeah. when it happens. Now, let me stop the narrative there, Tom. Let me let me get you to pipe down, because we can do some questions okay, before yes. we move on to there. So we had tons of questions about Thermopylae specifically. Uh, we may as well just go through them. So Preston K. Pearl says, were there actually 300 Spartans defending the gates, or is this a sort of invented number? No. What's the answer? Uh, absolutely. There were 300 Spartans. We know that because uh, 300 is is a significant number. It's the number of the Hippias, um, which is the kind of the elite squad. The people who've listened to the Sparta episode may remember the equivalent of the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Yes. Um, you know, you, you get your gold award and then you join the Hippias, which is basically the bodyguards of the kings. The, the um, elite Republican Guard, to use an uh, a, a same, yes, same analogy. Yes, yes, exactly. An elite squad of crack-picked men, to use the uh, "we have ways" uh, formulation. Right. right. Um, the the, the three hundred that follow Leonidas are, are not the kind of classic Hippias because these are these are older men who have um, who, had, children. had children. Yeah. So, but yes, we know that they're three hundred. Okay. So next question, Matthew Butcher. Uh, often uh, a, lo- a long-time listener, I often see him on Twitter. He says, "Without the betrayal, i.e., without this business of the other path, could the Greeks have held the Persians at Thermopylae indefinitely?" It sounds like the answer is no. Am I right? Well, had there not been a pass, a, a, a path round the pass, yeah. they could have done. But there's always a way round a, a pass. That's that's the nature of passes. <laughs> um, Top and, geography and, here. Yeah. <laughs> But but the part the Persians know this because they're very very expert both yeah. at fortifying and storming passes. It's one of the things that they do. Never so, try to hold a pass against the Persians. No, so so there was no way that the Spartans could ever have held it. Okay, um, they were always doomed. But I mean, you know, if it was if the only way through was through the the hot gates, then yes, I, I guess they they probably could have done. Well, they'd because, probably get exhausted eventually. I mean, if Xerxes yeah, but they, but so they've big. got reinforcements coming. That's the, that's okay. the point. Fair point. Fair point. Okay, so Sahanis has asked a question specifically about the Persian army. He or she says, what proportion are fighting for the greater glory of Persia? Is there any nationalist feeling? Are they basically mercenaries? And, and are the mercenaries, how much are they being paid? They're levies. So, so, that, so, so most of the people are levies. They're conscripts. They, this is part of the tribute that they have to pay the Persians. The Persians themselves, I mean, it's a kind of great honour to fight for the king. Uh, you know, right. these are not armies like a, a, a modern army or indeed like the Roman army, who, who are kind of professionals. The, these are, you know, these are levies uh, or people who are, you know, for the Persians, the Medes, the absolute crack squad, the, the, the crack troops. These are people who who are, you know, these are aristocracy, aristocracies and every yeah. aristocrat has commands people who he's bringing with them. And it's a great honour to, to, to fight in the... And what about the mercenaries, Tom? Because I'm thinking later on in history, a couple of centuries later, um, when Alexander the Great is fighting the Persians, the Persians rely a lot on Greek mercenaries. Is that the case now? Greek-speaking mercenaries in Xerxes' army? Uh, No, Um, because the reason that that Persians subsequently use Greek mercenaries is because it it dawns on them that Greek heavy infantry are, you know, incomparable, that, that... no one can really beat them in a pitch battle. Yeah. Um, so therefore they, they do pave them. Xerxes doesn't need to pay them because the Ionians are his subjects. And because he's in person with you know, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of men behind him, um, people uh, who, who Greek, Greek cities who are going over to him are very happy to do it um, yeah. in the assumption okay. that they're going to be rewarded in due course. So no, there are no mercenaries. And a question from me, um, about the technological difference between the armies. So are they the same kind of te- military technological level or are the Greek hoplites kind of more advanced, more heavily armed, better spears or whatever? What's the story? Well, Greek warfare is massively focused on heavy infantry. So there's very little role for cavalry. There's very little role for archery. Um, the Persians are very strong in both and they have heavy infantry as well. It's just that 
what Marathon had showed, and also Thermopylae shows to a degree, is that um, if heavily armoured Greek infantry can pin Persian armies down, they will probably win. Because not even the immortals can, for instance, can break the uh, the Spartan line at Thermopylae. Because, because they're too strong, they're too heavily armoured, the shields the spears the helmets the armor is it just makes the greeks too very difficult to break them the, the the converse to that which is why the persians generally assume that they will beat the greeks is that they're immobile right so if you have cavalry if you have archers it's quite easy to beat them but because the terrain you don't engage is not with very, them the terrain's not great for i suppose for sort of horse archers and stuff is it um, yeah so that's so that's the problem in greece yeah okay so last question on Thermopylae specifically, I think. Chet Archbold, who is a friend of the show, says, Is Thermopylae the first instance of the narrative of the noble defeat? Is it all just cynical spin or is there something more, perhaps even mythical to Thermopylae, like the Alamo or Dunkirk or something? So this goes to that point you made about you, you think Themistocles is a key figure in kind of creating this myth. And a question I would add to Chet's question is that sort of Dunkirk um, sort of mythology, is that created at the time or is it long after the event? I don't think Dunkirk is quite the analogy because at Dunkirk they don't stand and fight. So it's I mean, more they, you know, they were... Drift or something, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, it, except Rourke's Drift, they survive. Um, okay, yeah, it, fair it, point. It's, it's the, the kind of the, it's the noble death. It's General Gordon. We should definitely do a podcast. It's General, General Gordon. Gordon. Well, it's, but more specifically... It's it's. I mean, it's kind of rooted in the desire of Achilles, the great hero of the Iliad, who is given yeah. the choice of a long life and no glory or glory and a short life. And that idea that you can have a noble death, a, you know, good death is a very important kind of part of the Greek psyche because that, you know, it's saturated with kind of Homeric ideas. And I think that that's essentially what's lurking behind it. Because the um, the Spartan kings claimed to be descended from the Achaeans who had fought at Troy, and gilding that for Leonidas is the fact that you know he has this Delphic oracle where he's been told that unless a Spartan king dies, then the entire city will perish. So yeah. in a sense, he's offering himself up as a sacrifice. So that's that that's part of the swirl that the Spartans certainly are able to. To, to use to kind of counter the idea that they've been defeated and they have been defeated you know it's a humiliating defeat in one sense their king has died the pass has been forced after only two days but you know they can say well he has died for sparta in every in, way in, def in defeat he has won a in great defeat victory. he has won but i think the because i think i think why why do i think themistocles plays this role i mean there's the, the evidence for it is only circumstantial there's no hard evidence for it at all Partly it's because he's very, very good at spin, really, yeah. really good at spin. But it's also because when the Athenians evacuate Attica, that's the essence of the democracy. The democracy makes no sense without being rooted in the soil of Attica. That's what it's all about. The risk is that, that the Athenians become people without a city and therefore objects of contempt to their fellow their fellow Greeks, the Corinthians, the Spartans, the Megarans, people who have not yet lost their cities. And so the idea of sacrifice, that, that you have to sacrifice something to win, is an important part of the Athenian narrative. And if they compare the sacrifice that Leonidas has made by dying at Thermopylae with the sacrifice that the Athenians are making by evacuating Attica, then that establishes a bond between the Athenians and the Spartans that I think is incredibly important because the risk for Themistocles and the Athenians is that the Spartans who are you know and all the Peloponnesians who are naturally very insular will not want to stand and fight at Salamis because that they want to defend their own homes on the Peloponnese and the okay, Peloponnese is the kind so of you know this 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 near, them together. absolutely this kind of near island with the three prongs that is kind of attached to the mainland of Greece by this very narrow isthmus, this very, very narrow line at Corinth. Yeah. And what the Peloponnesians are doing, rather than marching out to defend Attica, which is really what the Athenians would like them to do, there's no prospect of another marathon because there aren't enough Athenians to do that, to hold off the, the, um, the, 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 the Persians. 
But also the, the Peloponnesians are not going to join them because they're building this wall across the isthmus, which they're going to defend. And they've kind of destroyed this road, which is a kind of corniche leading um, from Athens to, 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 to the isthmus. So they're equivalent, you know, the equivalent of dynamiting it to make sure that the, the, the Persian army can't a- attack it. But obviously you can only hold the isthmus if, the, if there is a Greek fleet to hold the Persian fleet at bay. So Themistocles is playing a very, very difficult game because he has to persuade the Greek, the other Greek naval contingents yeah. to stand at Thermopylae and sorry, to stand at Salamis and in a sense fight for Attica rather than for the Peloponnese. So, so creating the myth helps. So creating the myth, I, I think, massively helps. A last question before we go to a break. And after the break, we will continue with the narrative. So a last question. And Russell Hogg, he says, why did they stay to die? Um, why didn't they just retreat? at the end and that is a good question actually so they could have f- done a sort of fighting retreat couldn't they Leonidas no. and his men no no, you don't no think they possible? couldn't because because the moment they retreat along open the open terrain of Boeotia towards yeah. Attica that's open land and so you send the cavalry Xerxes just has to send his cavalry and his archers and they're you know they're around dead. them yeah they're so dead. It was, it's fight or right, okay very good all right so, so what Leonidas is doing is he's dying so that they can get away yes very good so let us take a break Tom and then when we come back we will complete the story which you have set up so brilliantly uh, with the Battle of Salamis and then hopefully at the end if you are nice and brief that is a warning then we will have (laughs) then we will have time to discuss the cosmic significance of all this and whether it was after all a big turning point in world history so we will see you after the break this episode is brought to you by Etsy Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are nearing, well, are we nearing the climax of the Persian Wars? We'll we'll find out how quickly Tom Holland can talk. Uh, So Thermopylae is over. The Battle of Salamis awaits. Tom, take us into the story. Right. So the Athenians have evacuated um, Attica. Athens is a ghost city. The only people who hold out are those who have remained on top of the Acropolis. Um, There is this Delphic prophecy, um, the wooden walls will hold. There is a wooden wall around the Acropolis. Um, so the people who hold it, you know, they, they, they hope that this is what the oracle means. Themistocles uh, and the Athenian um, high command assume that the wooden wall refers to the fleet, which has withdrawn to this island, Salamis, in the hope that they can engage and destroy the Persian fleet. But you know, it, it hangs completely in the balance. The Peloponnesians, the Spartans, the Corinthians and so on, are very, very twitchy about being stuck on an island away from the Peloponnese. Uh, So there is a constant risk that what had happened at the Battle of Lade at the end of the Ionian Revolt, where the entire Ionian fleet disintegrated, might happen at Salamis. So everything is absolutely in the balance. Yeah. Then the Persians arrive. Their cavalry come clattering through the empty streets of Athens. Xerxes arrives. He pitches his great tent at the foot of the Acropolis. The city is looted vast swathes of it are burnt um the great trophies of the democracy are crated up to be taken back as booty to to persia the persians storm the acropolis and it is burnt it's torched and amazing symbolism i mean must devastating symbolism for the greeks who can see it from salamis so the view to athens is blocked off by a great mountain but they can see the smoke rising and they know what's happening yeah. And again, of course, this just <laughs> is terrible for morale. And so you have this, there is constant debate, let's put it like that, on Salamis about what they should do. Should they skedaddle to the Peloponnese or should they stay and fight? And you can guarantee that there are agents on Salamis working for the Persians, because that's what always happens. And so it is being yeah. reported back to Xerxes that, you know, there's every prospect that the Peloponnesians and the Athenians are going to fall apart. And you can bet that, that gold is being offered to, to foster divisions. So it's, it's a real challenge for Themistocles uh, and um, those who want to fight at Salamis. But it is also a challenge for Xerxes because he now, it, it, it's now late September. Autumn is drawing in. Uh, and you remember from the, uh, the the Delphic Oracle, Divine Salamis, you will be the ruin of many a mother's son when the seed is scattered or the harvest is gathered in. We've now reached oh, the yes. harvest age. So it yep. looks like the crisis point is emerging. Now, what should Xerxes do? Demaratus, the Spartan, who understands his own people, he knows exactly what the Spartans would least want. And so he says, send your fleet, you know, divide it in two and send half of it to attack the Peloponnese. And that will split the greek fleet but xerxes doesn't want to do that because he now doesn't have enough troops really to do that if he divides his fleet in two then that that remains you know could be defeated and he can't because risk that he's lost ships to poseidon yes because of the business with the sea exactly oh. exactly artemisia who is the queen of halicarnassus the city from which herodotus comes which is why she has such a high profile in his history she says don't engage with them at all just sit it out uh you know winter's coming stay here for winter yeah. Uh, that it will all disintegrate. That's what I'd have done. But Xerxes can't because he's the king of the world and he doesn't want to be stuck in Athens. You know, it would be like the American president spending the winter in Kabul. Napoleon in Moscow. Napoleon in Moscow. Can't do that. So he doesn't want to do that. So he wants to engage. So what he does is he, he basically waits for the Greek fleet to come out of the straits because he doesn't want to fight in the narrow straits that separate Attica from Salamis. Yeah. So he waits and he waits and... Nothing happens. And so it's a game of cat and mouse. And what Themistocles does is that he turns the Persian command of espionage against them. And again, this 
it, it's very difficult to be entirely sure what happens because the sources are, you know, they're, we, we have a play by the, the tragedian Aeschylus. We have Herodotus's account. Both are quite confused. Neither goes into entirely the amount of detail you would that, that one would want. But I think that you can just about kind of distinguish that, that what, what decides Salamis is an intelligence war where you've got double agents out thinking each other. And basically what Themistocles needs to do is to get the Persian fleet into the straits. And the way that he does that, I think, is that he basically tells Xerxes not only what he is expecting to hear, but what he, he is desperate to hear, which is that the Athenians are actually prepared to, to, to change sides. That the Peloponnesians are, are going to betray them anyway, so they might yeah. as well try and get as good terms as they can. And what we do know is that um, the tutor of Themistocles' son, a slave called Sicinus, goes across in a, a little shipping, a little rowing boat across the straits where he's welcomed by Persian agents. He's taken directly to the Persian king. He then, Sicinus says, Themistocles, the Athenian admiral, is, is, wants you to win. The Peloponnesians are about to run away. They're plotting to go out fr from the straits, out into the open ocean, all that you have to do is to send your fleet out and you'll catch them red-handed. And then Sicinus goes back. Xerxes takes the bait. He sends his fleet out. They occupy the exit from the straits. They wait there all night. The Peloponnesians don't come. Xerxes has his throne put up on the mountain heights, the, the, the rocky prow that looks a seaborne Salamis, to watch what he is hoping will be the sight of the Peloponnesians trying to escape. It's always fatal, isn't it? When you when you put your throne up to watch a battle, it, it, it always ends in tears. He does not... So, so what, what, what then happens? We're not entirely sure. But, but essentially, at dawn, yeah. with Xerxes sat on his throne, the yeah. Persian fleet starts to go into the straits. Why do they do that? Perhaps it's because they're kind of preemptively deciding this is what Xerxes wants. Or perhaps it's because Xerxes gives the order. And why would Xerxes give the order? Well, as he looks down, he can see that a contingent of ships, which is actually the Corinthian contingent, is sailing not, not out immediately out of the straits, but round the island of Salamis. He's kind of going down the coast from Salamis. Yeah. And the reason for this is that um, maybe the Persians have, as they actually have done, they've sent the Egyptian contingent to block off the exit that, that lies kind of eight miles along the island of Salamis. And so Xerxes thinks, ah, it, what, what Themistocles had told me happening is now happening. They're sailing into a trap. Let's go in and get them. So the Persian fleet sails in, but they discover to their horror that the Athenian, that the, the Greek fleet is not disintegrating, that the Peloponnesians and the Athenians the Corinthians, the Megarans, everybody are a coherent body and they sail out to meet the Persian fleet. They back away, they back away, drawing the Persians in and in and in. And then it is said a great voice, a woman's voice, is heard echoing out across the strait saying, fools, why do you withdraw? Why do you withdraw? Attack! The Greek fleet sails forward, smashes into the side of the, uh, the Persian flotillas and bunches them up and exactly what the Greeks had wanted, which is to make sure that the, th the Persian weight of numbers is turned against them because now their oars are snagging, they're smashing into each other and the, 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 the Greek fleet can just pick them off. And Tom, who was the woman? Athena, who, Athena, 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 Demeter, Nemesis. I mean, who knows? We don't know. We don't oh. know. But, it, but, but, it, but it's that day in, in subsequent Greek renderings has the quality of myth. Yes. Uh, it's said that, you know, the shadowy forms of heroes are there, that great, a great serpent is seen <laughs> swimming alongside the Greek fleet. Uh, there is the sense that this is a, 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 a conflict fit to rank with, you know, the battle fought on the plains of Troy. And at the end of the day, the Persian fleet is shattered. The, their ships are, are you know, masts and jet flotsam and jetsam um and one half of the amphibious operation that xerxes has brought to conquer the greeks has been effectively um put out of action and 
this this isn't the end of of yeah. the Persian invasion. Xerxes himself, you know, he's seen enough. He doesn't want to spend the winter in this kind of ghastly place. So he <laughs> goes back across the Aegean and he he returns to Persepolis, but he leaves a, a very substantial. Uh, military force in Greece you know he's taken away his levies but he's left the kind of crack squad and the following year the Spartans and the other Peloponnesians are persuaded by the Athenians that if they don't come and and basically confront this force and rescue Athens then the Athenians will go over to the Persians so a great land force joins they meet at Plataea you know the little city that had been standing by Athens throughout and there they defeat the Persians in, in 479 and that effectively is is the end of the Persian war and it is for the Greeks what the Second World War is for the British. It's the great victory. And just as the British never stopped going on about the Second World War, <laughs> so the Athenians the Greeks, and the Spartans yes. never stopped going on about the Persian War. And All right. those, those who were on the wrong side, which included the Thebans, are never allowed to forget it. So before we get into the significance of the legacy, a couple of questions from listeners about the, the Battle of Salamis itself. So Ramsey Nora says... Um, who were the better sailors, the Persians in brackets Phoenicians? Presumably there must have been an awful lot of Phoenicians. They're obviously brilliant sailors and Xerxes must have relied on them. Or the Greeks. I thought the former, i.e. the Phoenicians, had more of an impressive range of maritime achievements. So are the Greeks going into this as as, as underdogs, sort yeah, of in maritime definitely, terms? definitely. The Phoenicians are, are absolutely the best. Um, right. The, 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 the Egyptians are very good as well. And the Ionians, yeah. of course, are very good. The whole thing about the, um, you know, they're a very good. So the Corinthians are excellent and they've basically perfected the trireme, which is this um, kind of, it's like a kind of, uh, a, if you imagine a spear on water with three banks of oars um, invented by the Phoenicians, but perfected by the Corinthians. So the Corinthians are very, very good. The Athen- I mean, the Athenians have only had three years to practice. So in a way, Tom, the way they win the Battle of Salamis is by negating all of the maritime accomplishments, yeah. the nautical accomplishments of the Persian fleet. Essentially, They yeah. basically turn it almost into a land battle, do they, by concentrating No, they don't. Area. No. So it's they not don't. like the okay. Romans do against the Carthaginians, where that, that is the Roman strategy. Yeah. The, the Athenians have, have been practicing very hard, and they are able to use the ram to destroy at the head of the prow of the ship, to destroy yeah. the um, these other ships, because they've become bunched up so they um, win by ship, so the athenians are good battle. the athenians yeah. are good. you know they have been practicing hard it's all they've been doing for three years so they are i mean they're not absolutely as elite as the, the phoenicians are but they're pretty good um the plataeans um you know the, at the beginning of the um you know before thermopylae they've come and they've offered their services and the athenians are always in the need of rowers and so they the, the plataeans c- kind of try and do it and herodotus says that you know that, that their enthusiasm to help was greater than their ability to help that's funny so 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 yes thank you thank you but no thank you basically with platean platean rose okay so next question from fordeck and shabby i don't know if that's two different people um anyway it's about themistocles could the greeks have beaten off the persians without themistocles and is there a historical parallel between themistocles well we've kind of alluded to this i think in the last episode themistocles and churchill so could the Greeks have won without Themistocles? And is Themistocles Churchill? I, th- I think that, um, I mean, he, he's a cross between Churchill and Odysseus. Wow, that's a great cross. He, <laughs> that's a great, he looks, what a great thing to say about So somebody. the statues of him, he looks like, he looks like Churchill. He has this kind of bulldog, I yeah. mean, he's kind of big bulldog kind of expression. Um, he likes champagne and silk pyjamas. We don't know that, but he, he, I mean, he's an absolute, piece of work he's he schemes he backstabs i mean he ends up going over to the persians i mean he, right. he he'll betray anyone anyone okay. that he can you know very like odysseus but i think he does i mean i think insofar as you know the sources that we have I, I i think that he plays absolutely the key role and i think that i think he saves i think he saves his city and i think he saves greece um, okay and i think you know it's very difficult because of course there is always a tendency on the part, you know, we have a biography of him by Plutarch, which um, is the most detailed account of his life. Uh, he, he doesn't feature very strongly in Herodotus because he had so many enemies and clearly the sources that Herodotus is drawing on don't want to big him up. But even even they can't deny the, the kind of outsized role that he played. Um, 
So there is, of course, there's a tendency to, to focus on the individual, uh, perhaps at the expense of the collective in, in yeah. the sources. But I, I do, having said that, I mean, I, yes, I think that Churchill is the obvious comparison. All right. Well, let's get down to, to the, some of the real big questions. So Richard, Richard Delevin says, what would have happened if Persia had won at Salamis? So in other words, is this a winnable war for Persia? Um, and, and what does that mean? Does that mean that, that do they bother incorporating mainland Greece into the Athenian, into the Persian Empire, or do they just, you know, sort of sow the fields with salt and then go home? Or what's the end game from the Persian perspective? Well, this is a question that Herodotus asks. And I think we mentioned this on the episode in, on, on counterfactuals that the very first counterfactual is exactly this. Uh, You've written an essay about this, haven't you? About, yeah. So Herodotus, uh, Herodotus says, I mean, he's talking about the he's he's writing at a time where the Athenians basically have have replaced the Persians as the, as the big bad boy on the block, <laughs> um, and so the Athenians aren't very popular with other Greeks. And Herodotus says, my controversial opinion is that the Athenians, you know, the Athenians did it, and the reason for that is that without their fleet, the the Persians would have been able to just land troops on the Peloponnese. And so the, the, the wall across the isthmus at Corinth would have been useless. Um, and it, Herodotus gives it as his opinion that the Spartans would have been wiped out after performing prodigies of valour. And that would have been that. And Greece yeah. would have become a, a, a Persian province. And that I'm, I'm pretty sure that is exactly what would have it happened. It would become a Persian satrapy, basically. Yeah, because, as you know, as we said at the beginning of episode one, um, that there are lots of cities that are, are very keen <laughs> to welcome the Persians. You know, yeah. the Thebans um, would be delighted to see the Athenians wiped out. And uh, lots of people in the Peloponnese who are subject to, um, to Sparta would, you know, again, be delighted to see the Spartans eliminated as well. And particularly, of course, the Helots, the, the Messenians, the people who've been enslaved by the, by the Spartans, um, I mean, what it would, what what the Persians would have done is is what the Thebans, in due course, a um, hundred years later, do, which is to to set the Helots free and establish them as a kind of you know a, a, a city in their own right. So that's I'm sure what the Persians would have done, because the whole way that the Persians deal with the Greeks is to divide and rule. Okay, so we've got ten to fifteen minutes left, and I want to kick off that dis- the discussion with two questions from our listeners, and I'll read them both out. So first of all, Joshua D. Terry, friend of the show. He says, I once read a counterfactual essay arguing that the Battle of Salamis saved Western civilization. That sounds very Tom Holland, I have to say. Do you agree that Persian victory would have prevented the Simpsons from ever happening? I.e. Western civilization. Now, before you answer that, just the second, I'll read the second one as well. Stefan Jensen, another f- friend of the show, he says, did the Greek victory over the Persians matter at all? Would we have been speaking Farsi all over Europe if it weren't for Leonidas's Brave 300? Or was it just hugely important for the Greeks, but not very significant in the great scheme of things? So there you have Joshua D. Terry, who says no Star Wars, no Simpsons, no Western civilization. Stefan Jensen says, well, who cares? It you know it only matters for the Greeks and doesn't really matter for anybody else. So what, where do you... St- now, Tom, your book, Persian Fire, is called... The subtitle is... What is it? The First World War and the... and the First World Empire uh, and the Battle for the West. And the Battle for the West, yeah. I, I mean, obviously... I, I It's an ambivalent you, title because, of course, there's a... The Battle for the West is the West of the Persian Empire. <laughs> well... Not necessarily the West because, 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 as I've said, the West is a compound of both Greek and Persian influences. Yes. And one, one way to answer that question is to say that the Ionians who essentially it's the Ionia is the birthplace of philosophy. So yeah, and science. Thales oh, right. Am and, I not right? Heraclitus and all that kind of stuff, the Ionian Enlightenment, as it's called. Um, you know, that happens under Persian rule. So yeah. it's perfectly possible for Greeks to do their stuff under, under, under Persian dominance. Um, against that, I think that there's something very distinctive about Athens, that would so, so the democracy would not have been func- would not have functioned as it goes on to function under Pericles, um, and the golden age of Athens under Persian rule, and, and Athens would probably not have you know I mean it would it would have been wiped out the the fate of Miletus would have been visited on Athens um, yeah uh, it's you know the men would have been slaughtered the the women and and, and children enslaved um, so there would have been no Socrates there would have been no Plato. Um, there would have been 
no Aristophanes, there would have been no Aeschylus, there would have been. But there no, would have been no drama. Why? Why not? Because the drama is an in, it, that that the tragedies, the comedies are a function of the democracy. They don't. They couldn't happen in a no. non-democratic Greek. No, because it's it, it it's dependent. That they are an, they are a kind of organic part of of what it is to be an Athenian in a democracy. That's that's how they evolve. Okay, so I can you could of... say, well, you know, the lack of of tragedy or comedy perhaps doesn't, you know, so what. Guess. But I I do think that um, the the influence of Greek philosophy and specifically Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. But is it not the case that um, that as you said yourself, all the Ionian cities have great thinkers and they have great philosophers who flourish. The other thing, if I can just make a couple of other, um, offer a couple of other incoherent thoughts. One is obviously Alexandria plays a huge part a couple of hundred years later in yeah. the sort of dissemination of Greek thought. And that happens under a monarchy it does. that equates itself with, with divinity, the Ptolemaic kingdom. Yes, it does. Um, and also Persian and Greek, there is a synthesis of Persian and Greek ideas anyway in the Absolutely. years after the Persian Wars. Uh, in, in the form of Christianity. And 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 then and then Islam, but I I think that without the specific traditions of Athenian philosophy, yeah, I doubt that would have happened. Uh, there would, for instance, um, it, it, it's very improbable that you know Alexander's conquests would have happened. Um, Why? And without Alexander, well, because because if if Persia has occupied uh, Greece, then. Um, I mean, it's perfectly possible that there would have been rebellions equivalent to the Ionian Revolt. Um, perhaps in due course, the Persians would have had to do, a, you know, in America and beat a retreat from this kind of mountainous backwater. But um, the, the power structures that gave us the Athenian democracy and all the, the kind of the incredible cultural trends that flows from that, um, yeah. you know, that would have gone. And presumably the framework of, of the Macedonian monarchy that ends up giving us Philip and then Alexander would also you know, be neutered at the very yeah. least. Um, so essentially you would, you know, the, you wouldn't have had the Hellenistic world. You wouldn't have had the world of, of uh, that follows Alexander. But you would have had something. Could you not argue though, Tom, the Persians win the, the Persian, the Greco Persian wars, they create a sort of, I don't know. Uh, I want to say Pax, persiana or something yeah. in the sort of eastern mediterranean and so on so that at the end of at the point where bc gives way to ad the same synthesis of kind of greek sure egyptian persian I, ideas yeah, is I, i'm sure yes absolutely yes i'm sure that would have happened but it's just that that the synthesis the form the synthesis takes would have been would have been different, but it wouldn't have been necessarily worse, would it? That's my, I suppose, my point. I don't know. I mean, so, I, I, well, well, you see, I, but you see, I think our ability to judge what would be worse would have changed. Right. Well, that's a very big claim because our, framework, our entire framework, yeah, our framework. Well, you know, our, our assumption, for instance, that democracy is a good thing, yeah, would would not exist because the democracy would have been wiped out. But we don't think that. I we don't. I see. I don't think. There's an assumption sometimes among particular, particularly, I hope I'm not going to alienate loads of listeners, particularly kind of American thinkers of a, of a particular kind of political disposition that, you know, we're the heirs of Athenian democracy and, and all this stuff. But I always think you, you can't draw a, a sort absolutely of direct not. line because we're not, the Roman Empire and all those things not. come in between. And we should do an episode on democracy because that's absolutely not the case. The democracy, and it won't surprise you to hear me say this, the democracy we have is rooted in Christianity. I, it doesn't surprise Christian me assumption. the Athenian all. democracy is radically different yeah but the, so the, we'd still have got to where we got to even if there was no Athenian democracy no we wouldn't we wouldn't because because we, we don't know what form you know presumably some kind of synthesis would have happened but we don't know that it would necessarily be the synthesis that that in the event emerged and a world in which you don't have Christianity and Islam is a radically different one I mean it Maybe but it would, you, you might you know, still have had monotheisms, Tom. You, you might. Know. Yes, you might, but we don't know. And the forms that it would have taken would have been different. Okay. I, I, I just think that, you know, it, it's... And, and, and saying the world would be, you know, better or worse... Well, you can't do that. The, standard, I mean, the standards yes. by which we would judge what is good or bad, better or worse, are themselves determined by the fact that the Greeks did win the Battle of Salamis, I would argue. Fair enough. Let me just change the question a tiny bit then. 
should we, when we tell the story of the Persian Wars, we always tell it from the Greek perspective. So Ali Ansari, if he's listening to this, <laughs> steaming with rage, must be absolutely beside No, he's himself. very... I, 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 when I advertised this on Twitter, I put a picture of the uh, a kind of modern illustration of the Greeks winning the Battle of Salamis, and he wittily responded with a picture of the Persians burning Athens. Right, very so it's good. all good sport. Yeah. But, so, so, you know... Almost without exception, we tell this story from the Greek perspective, and we tell it, and, and people always tell us as a story of good and evil. I mean, they really do. The three hundred Frank Miller comic book and film. I think they do it as good, good and evil. They do it as goodies and baddies, which is slightly different. I think. Okay, goodies and baddies. Then <laughs> fair enough. The Greeks are freedom-loving, rugged farmers. You know, they're they're sort of Russell Crowe figures. The Persians are, 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 are dissipated by luxury. They are yeah. cruel. They are Oriental. They are—they're they're pure sort of Orientalist fantasy. Is that? Do you have any truck with any of that, or do you think there? Do you think there is a moral dimension to this story, or not? Well, what I think is that it's an incredibly exciting story if you look at it through the eyes of the Greeks. Yeah, and I, I think that excitement is is a kind of underestimated part of history among professional historians. Well, that's certainly true. Fun, you know. I mean, yes. I mean, this this is the story that got me obsessed by by Greece, by classical history, by history full stop. I found it thrilling. And yeah. I, I found it thrilling in the way that I found Lord of the Rings thrilling or yeah. the story of the Battle of Britain thrilling because the story of massively outnumbered people that you can identify with holding off a kind of, you know, vast force emerging and descending on you is inherently thrilling. And yeah. I, I wouldn't want to. Um, I mean, I think, uh, of course, I think the story is more complicated. I think that that you know, the, there's so much about Persia that is kind of impressive. And I think, yeah. I mean, I'm not convinced that that history should be seen in terms of goodies and baddies anyway. Of course not. But course but not. but what I do think is that if you are too kind of purist about that, if you're 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 too kind of, uh, oh, you know, I. I don't want to be Eurocentric about this or anything. <laughs> You're missing yeah. out on one of the great narratives of world history of getting hit, of, of you know, of enjoying it. Because if you can just step back from that and just kind of enjoy it, the drama of you know, put yourself in the sh- in, in in the sandals of a Spartan at Thermopylae, seeing the dust cloud approaching you, or the Athenian fleet uh, at Artemision, seeing the, the the warning light flash on Skiathos, or then you know the experience, for, you know, emotionally identify with the horror of an Athenian seeing his city burn, and then the the, the kind of exultant sense of relief at the victory at Salamis. I mean, that that is, it, it's a kind of thrilling, thrilling narrative. And, you know, to, to, to kind of feel a sense of the power and the glory of Achilles doesn't mean that you don't have sympathy for Hector. Yeah. Okay. I, I completely... But I think uh... to be too priggish about it, you're cutting yourself off from... You know, what is what is an incredibly dramatic story? I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you've told the story brilliantly. And to save you from uh, doing it, I should do it myself. Your book, Persian Fire, is a terrific read. And anybody who has enjoyed the last couple of episodes of this podcast, I'm sure will really enjoy the way you, you tell the story. Maybe not quite as good as Herodotus's version, but you can but, read. I mean, come, you can read my translation of that. You can. So, <laughs> so basically, you can you can overindulge on Tom Holland. You can read Tom Holland as Herodotus, and then Tom Holland as himself telling you the well, story. Well, Donnie, it's very it's very kind of you, and 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 clearly you're very ill. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but what but what I would say, so what I think about Herodotus. So, so it was on the back of my childhood obsession with with the story of the Persian Wars that I first read Herodotus and Herodotus has has been the kind of classic that's accompanied me through my life most of all. But I would say that this story also has accompanied me through my life. I mean, it it was the one of, you know, it was the first great story from history that I became obsessed by and I've written it and rewritten it again and again over my life. And one of the, one of the interests of that, one of the fascinations is that because I've, I've been obsessed by it for so long, I can track the evolution of my thought. And I think that that's, you know, that being obsessed about a particular area of history, you know, that's one of the joys of it as you get older, yeah. is that you that's can, what? you know, you can, you can kind of track how, how you're, not just your thinking about that has, has changed, but how, you know, your whole outlook on life has changed as well. 
just like me with the three-day week, Tom. <laughs> it is. It's exactly what I was thinking. The, career, the life of Jim, James Callahan, likewise. Right. Equally thrilling. So, uh, Tom, you can stop talking now. You've put in a, a brilliant performance because we've done those two episodes. People won't realise this, but we've done them back to back. So you've basically been talking for about the past two and a <laughs> yeah. half hours. Um, so now you can go and rest your voice. Everybody else, thank you very much for listening. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot com.